When doing work with our clients, we have to strike a balance. A balance between how much we ask of them by increasing their cognitive load, by giving them more things to think about than just the here and now. And balance that off with how much they engage with the work we're doing and how much they want to build it into their own future after our work has ended. It's an important but not necessarily straightforward decision about how it is best to do this. We very quickly realised that we need to make this foresight project cooperating very closely with whoever is the recipient of, of our work. Otherwise, the scenarios that we would develop without the direct involvement of the employees of the company or the decisions makers in there would be in a very high risk of being not treated seriously, which would be a failure for us because we do these things in order to challenge some of the assumptions in a given place and then to make them realize some opportunities and threats that they wouldn't see otherwise. And if we show them some of the outcomes of our works and they treat them as something that is completely improbable in their eyes, something that is different from what they imagine or are even quite sure of that will happen, then we have failed. So an important aspect in all of what we do is, well, at least trying to help in fostering this sort of a foresight culture in an organization. Sometimes it's a separate goal of a project. So it helps us in, in inspiring our employees to have these bottom-up ideas that yep. would help us thrive in, in the future. That is my guest today on FuturePod, Norbert Kolos, who is the managing partner of 4CF, a Polish futures company that builds guidebooks to the futures for their clients. Welcome to FuturePod, Norbert. Hi, thanks for having me. I believe you would be the first polished futurist that we've had on FuturePod, so congratulations being number one. <laughs> Thank you. So question one is the story question. So what is the Norbert Kolos story? How did you become a member of the Futures and Foresight community? All right. My story is directly connected with the story of the company, the Foresight Consultancy, which I co-founded, which is called 4CF. And the story of my adventure with futures and foresight and the story of a company called 4CF begins in my student times. It was the mid-noughties, 20 or so years ago, 2005 or something like that. And I was studying at the University of Warsaw in Poland at that time, together with a high school colleague, actually, Gertrud Kiewicz, with whom I later co-founded the company. We were both science fiction lovers. I was more into Stanisław Lem, perhaps, myself, maybe Asimov or Philip Dick and whatnot. This was probably, well, almost definitely a factor in 4CF later came to be, but it was far from being decisive. We were both studying in two faculties at the same time, economics and management. And somewhere along the way, we added third faculty, which was psychology. And the reason for that was that we basically both felt that something was missing in the view of the world that the other two faculties were presenting to us. And in hindsight, I would say that this was a very good decision to, to add psychology to that mix because psychology has been extremely useful in my daily foresight work, but it wasn't what led me to futures and foresight. In the end, it was economics or to be more precise, econometrics. So maybe not an obvious things to lead you to futuring and foresight, but I know quite a few futurists who had a similar start. Econometrics, in my view then, was one of the very few things during uh, my studies with some actual practical implications. And around the same time, both myself and, and Piotr were doing an internship in a manufacturing company, a soft drink producer. 
at the time in Poland, they were on a very close third place just behind Coca-Cola and then Pepsi. So a pretty big deal, a, a big, large company. We were senior, basically economists. So no one cared about our skills in management or psychology. Our internship revolved around some data crunching, reporting, that sort of stuff. And on one occasion, we found out how they make sales forecasts in that company. And that was using trend lines in Excel, basically. So this was unbelievably primitive. For us, such a large company, so many experts, shiny offices, and these primitive trend lines, which were so wrong for us on so many levels being fresh after our course in, in econometrics. We thought that this is our opportunity to shine. During that internship, we made a really nice econometric model that took into account all sorts of data from average temperatures in Poland, shelf prices of the company's products, their competitors' prices, what's called numeric handling distribution, marketing budgets, lots of stuff. And as a matter of fact, after we also did some data obfuscation, we used the same model in a sort of a student competition, which we won. And the award was, lo and behold, not having to take the econometrics exam. So <laughs> it was actually quite a good thing because it was one of the hardest exams uh, uh, during the course of our studies. So lots of our fellow student colleagues were envying us. But and to cut the story short, we thought that there may be some market potential to such models. So we developed a small computer program, a sort of a front end to an econometric model, which made making forecasts using pre-prepared econometric models much easier. And we wrote a business plan with which we entered another competition. And this time we won a little bit of money for starting up our business. And the name of the company we decided upon was 4C Future. And it was all in the name. We wanted to foresee the future using our quantitative modeling. But as you might guess, it has changed very soon because in a year or two, we weren't actually so maybe passionate about data crunching anymore. But more importantly, perhaps we were not able to extend the time horizons of our clients would want us to for their strategic decision-making purposes. We could, of course, but the reliability of this yeah. forecast would be no. And that was when we started looking into qualitative ways of fulfilling these kinds of need to, to get better insights into long-term strategic decision-making. And we found out about the Millennium Project. We joined, we established the Polish node. We quickly caught up on methodology and then uh, started developing some of our own tools and methods. This was always a very important thing for us. We always had a lot of ideas of our own. Soon after, we also established the Polish Society for Future Studies, joined other foresight networks. So the company grew and uh, yeah. Oh, and we shortened the name to 4CF because, well, foreseeing the future wasn't really such a good fit anymore. And now the company is, what, 17 or so years old. We have an absolutely brilliant team of dozen people, hundreds of projects in our portfolio, still full of new ideas, many of those currently in, in the making. So yeah, here I am and here we are. Fantastic. So yeah, the economics and the foreseeing, it's been a somewhat repeated path for a number of people. We start off in economics. I too studied economics. We start off thinking, you know, the future can be modeled in some way. The yeah. future can be contained in kind of relationships of factors. And then of course, the real world tends to always be prone to be a joker and throw up randomness and capriciousness. Yeah. So for those who tried these quantitative ways of foreseeing the future, their limitations are obvious after some time. And now I suppose that we will see a sort of a revival for the hope of being able to foresee the future in the form of AI-supported models. Yeah. But then again, the limitations of those, I'm afraid, even though they can be infinitely almost more complex than, than what we were able to do with our econometric modeling, still very similar limitations apply. So, so I think we won't be changing the name of our company to foresee future back again. You talked about 
adding psychology to your studies yep. and then finding the psychology increasingly useful. Do you want to draw a link to that in terms of how how you've practiced your story? And because psychology is a very singular distinct science when compared to both economics and management? Originally, the reasoning, as I mentioned, was that I felt the need to get a little bit of a different perspective from the very analytical way of thinking that we were presented with, both in economics and and management, actually. And it turned out to be a right choice because it gave both me and then this colleague of mine, some very needed additional perspective and deeper insights into how the world works, actually. We were being taught in economics about all sorts of models supposed to explain what's happening all around. And all of these models had lots of various disclaimers or assumptions or assuming and that and then so on, then this model would work. But of course, it wouldn't work in the real world because there are people in the real world and these people are very complex creatures and they are a very important part of what happens in the end. And then usually what happens is something quite different from a lot of models would say, being able to get some better insight, especially, for example, into all sorts of psychological biases that that we have. So both us as futurists or analysts, but also the participants of various exercises that we do of some collective intelligence processes, being aware of those challenges that we need to cope with uh, constantly helps, I think, in being able to identify some implicit assumptions, for example, or some opportunities or threats that were unknown earlier, stuff like that. So it's basically about this awareness of how we function as humans, which I think helps in all sorts of processes that are not purely about data crunching, but which revolve very strongly around gathering collective intelligence in some processes that require communication between people and so on. So that's why I think it's needed. Without that, I might still be stuck much more than I am now in those more purely analytical approaches. Yeah. And has science fiction remained part of your interest or source of ideas? Because science fiction again, is a fairly common trope amongst Mm -hmm. the futures community. Of course, it has remained. It's a part of my fascination with the future, and it's been present from my very early childhood, actually, and then still remains. It originally, I think, was inspired by my father, who has shown me some first science fiction books. The very first one, some of the very first books I, I've read were ones from Julius Verne, actually. They were a source of inspiration and then some adventures that I might be doing in my mind and listening to music by Jean-Michel Jarre. <laughs> and to this day, constantly science fiction remains basically a wonderful source of new ideas because in a little bit of a contrast to <clears throat> these these analytical econometric routes in which, you know, everything had to be tracked in data and so on. In our current line of work, it doesn't really matter where does the inspiration come from. If it's something that's challenging to your current assumption and at the same time is plausible enough, then it's worth considering and then perhaps pursuing or trying to not make it happen, depending on what it is. So any source of inspiration is great, and science fiction is one of those sources. Thanks, Norbert. Um, You talked about at your company, you've actually quite enthusiastically both use futures methods, but also create your own. So I'm very interested to hear what's in your bag of methodological tricks 
that you use, that you go to? Sure, gladly. So maybe let me start with two methods or maybe methodological frameworks that are not ours that we use in our daily work and then relate them to some of the tools that we've developed for CF. We do a lot of scenarios like like many of us (laughs) do. We don't always do them in all of our foresight project, but when we do, we usually follow more or less at least the Oxford scenario planning approach. So as you and then our listeners will know, basically scenarios as a small set of manufactured futures, basically Mm. describing those hypothetical future contexts meant mostly as a reframing support to help challenge the assumptions of those who use them. We've tried along the way lots of alternative approaches to building scenarios, including, (laughs) as you can imagine, very analytical ones in the beginning of the company, including morphological analysis. That was (laughs) something that caught our attention very early on. But our go-to approach these days is what we call selective clustering, which is a method in which the scenarios are custom built by a small task force with the intention of coming up with a set of scenarios that are challenging for one's imagination, as challenging for one's imagination as we can manage, basically, while keeping them plausible at the same time. Highly analytical and structured methods of scenario building gave worse results in our experience than what you need, at least when you put the goals of scenario making like you do in the Oxford scenario planning approach. Another framing we use quite a lot, or at least elements of it, is something that I think could be more interesting for you and our listeners. I don't know whether it's been mentioned in future pod before or whether you know it. Generally, it's rather unusual in the foresight community, and it's called assumption-based planning. Have you heard about it? Uh, it has had a couple of runs, but I'd be more than happy if you wanted to explain it just, <laughs> just with a bit of detail. Gladly, gladly, because it's been quite a big influence. It's something that's been developed in the 90s at RAND for the United States Army. I can't recall how I first came into it. Most futurists have not heard about it unless they heard about it from for CF or someone with whom we work. The word planning in the name, assumption-based planning, doesn't probably do it any favors in getting attention from (laughs) futurists. And I think that neither does the fact that the book describing this methodological framework doesn't contain the word foresight or future studies or any similar words. But yet, assumption-based planning is described by its authors as a tool for reducing avoidable surprises. And that's a very foresight-ish tagline, I would say. So. The framework revolves around various ways in which we can identify uh, assumptions underlying strategic plans, then how to select the load-bearing assumptions, so meaning those that their failure would necessitate a significant adjustment of these plans, and then how to identify which of those load-bearing assumptions have certain vulnerabilities. So in the end, in the process, we end up with a list of load-bearing yet vulnerable strategic assumptions, which is a very useful thing to have, obviously, especially if we are talking about assumptions that were implicit in a given organization. We've been using elements of this framework for many years in projects for the military, actually, in the finance sector, energy sector, this goes on and on, and always with great results. I really do highly recommend it. Very practice-oriented. Do you build environmental scanning processes around those load-bearing assumptions? Yes, we've done that. It can be done. It's a little bit of a different process because usually what you need as a starting point for this classical assumption-based planning is some starting point in the form of a plan. It can be something that is formally written down or something that you extract, so to speak, from decision makers in a given company, but then it can grow into a sort of horizon scanning process. Of course, you can also build a sort of a continuous process for identifying the assumptions on an ongoing 
basis the assumptions in the company that can potentially be a threat to, to that organization fulfilling its strategic goals. So the Oxford Scenario Planning Approach and Assumption-Based Planning are, I think, some of the highlights of what's been very important for us at 4CF. But then, as I mentioned, we have a suite of tools and methods developed by us, which are in almost daily use in our project. And these include, for example, our own real-time Delphi platform called 4CF Halnix. This has been developed by us after many years of using all sorts of alternatives from even classical pen and paper approach, which was useful in some cases when confidentiality was a big issue and it was difficult to ensure high levels of data security with online platforms. So, so we even did it like in the olden days with pen and paper, but also, of course, we went through all sorts of other available online tools. And using the lessons learned, we implemented some of our own ideas for improving the overall user experience, also streamlining the process of participating in a real-time Delphi survey. And one of the important aspects for us in this tool of ours was limiting the cognitive overload for the participants of the process, which has always been a big issue in real-time Delphi. So we've had some ideas that we implemented in the tool, and then it's been very useful for us as a part of complex foresight projects. So here and there, Delphi survey is a useful tool to have when it comes to assessing things. But it's important to mention that, of course, while Delphi surveys are great for using collective intelligence for assessing things, they are basically completely unsuitable for collective brainstorming. And that's where a different tools of ours comes in. It's called the Forcia PNICS. And uh, it's basically an online collectively built tree of arguments. So somewhat inspired by the futures wheel, maybe, but more flexible in terms of applications, a bit gamified, strongly inspired by a foresight board game that we've developed earlier called the Stranger Futures. And this online tool is generally both fun to use and quite powerful in terms of its ability to generate valuable insights. It has been very useful for us also in the pandemic times when we weren't able to run face-to-face -face workshops. And last but not least, we have what we call Forcia Flex, and that's an engine for running Foresight Gamebooks. And Foresight Gamebooks are a Forcia idea that has been developed in order to immerse people in scenarios of the future by giving them opportunity to interact with these scenarios by making choices in an interactive text-based, sometimes illustrated story. So, so it's a great tool that makes it easier to challenge the decision makers and, and, and equally employees' assumptions. It, it sometimes we use it for introducing people to futures-oriented thinking, to maybe encourage employees to innovate and, and so on. Even though these foresight gamebooks are supposed to be a fun, rather lighthearted experience, it also helps us to ensure that the scenarios are taken seriously by those who might perhaps otherwise disregard them. So once they are immersed in this future and then forced to make some decisions in those future scenarios as if they were living there, they often end up treating them more seriously in the end. Yeah. The common theme through those tools is how you engage with participants, whether they're expert participants or decision makers or just the people who work or are the customers or the partners in an organisation. I'm getting a sense that you're building tailored tools about enhancing that without necessarily flipping over into what you call the cognitive overload. Yeah, absolutely. So we very quickly realised that we need to make these foresight projects cooperating very closely with whoever is the recipient of, of our work. Otherwise, the scenarios that we would develop without the direct involvement of the employees of the company or the decision makers in there would be in a 
very high risk of being not treated seriously, which would be a failure for us because we do these things in order to challenge some of the assumptions in a given place and then to make them realize some opportunities and threats that they wouldn't see otherwise. And if we show them some of the outcomes of our works and they treat them as something that is completely improbable in their eyes, something that is different from what they imagine or are even quite sure of that will happen, then we have failed. So an important aspect in all of what we do is, well, at least trying to help in fostering this sort of a foresight culture in an organization. Sometimes it's a separate goal of a project. So help us in in inspiring our employees to have these bottom-up ideas that would help us thrive in in the future. But sometimes it's just that we are supposed to deliver some, mm, some actionable insights, let's say. And we know that if we do not engage them enough in the process, then even if we deliver something useful, it might end up not being used. So we, that's why we approach it like that. So these are usually very interactive processes. And then it's been important also to not only make it all methodologically correct, but also fun for people to participate in it. It's always been an important aspect of what we do. It helps everyone. We have more fun and the participants more have more fun and the results are usually much better as a result of all that. Thanks, Norbert. I'm interested in the emerging futures that you're paying particular attention to. What are the emerging futures that you find yourself just drawn to, that you're very interested in? It might be that you're excited by them. It might be that you're concerned by them. Yeah, obviously, there's a lot of potentially emerging issues, both good and bad, related to current hot topics. So AI, quantum computing, genetic editing, VR, AR, transhumanism, (laughs) and then so on. But I wouldn't want to dive into it that much, perhaps uh, in part because it's so overhyped at the moment. And I'm sure you've heard a lot about these things and you'll hear much more in the near future, whether we like it or not. We are actually just warming up at 4CFR engines for a new project on which we'll be coming up with some policy recommendations related to AI. Stay tuned. Uh, But when it comes to Uh, Perhaps I'd like only to mention again that I'm really glad about our decision in the early days of the company to stop doing those econometric models. If we are doing them still, or if we continued with any sort of other data crunching, we'd now be in big trouble probably. So that's good. Yeah, weak signals that aren't so overhyped nowadays are a more tricky question. The potential changes to the places we work and live in is an interesting source of inspiration for me because we are often so very used to how they look like that it's hard to imagine any major changes. So one example of that which I wanted to tell you about is that it's very quickly become entirely within the realm of possibility that we'll stop having kitchens in our homes and apartments in a relatively near future. I don't know about Australia, but in most of Europe, you would have a really hard time nowadays selling an apartment or a house without a kitchen. It's actually close to unimaginable for many people that you might not have one at your home. And historically, there are quite a lot of reasons for this. So it's connected to some traditional ideas about the family, the role of women. Here in Poland, home-cooked food is generally seen as healthier from everything else almost by definition to all alternatives. Uh, It's also considered to be cheaper to cook your own meals. But this is all changing quite fast. And just as we are not sewing our own clothes anymore, we will most probably lose the need to cook our own food sooner or later. So meals 
prepared professional, it can already be both healthier and cheaper, save a lot of time, not to mention some increasingly valuable space in our apartment. So the benefits are similar to, for example, not having to make your own clothes. So in my view, there yeah. are more and more signals that our kitchens uh, may be numbered. I think the first time I ever heard of that, Norbert, it was noticeable, was in Spain because I mm-hmm. was doing some work in Spain. And people in Spain explained to me that they often didn't have a kitchen in their apartments. They probably had a microwave, they had a coffee maker, but they didn't have an oven, they didn't have a cooktop, they didn't have the appliances, the apartments were smaller. Exactly. Uh, they were cheaper without, because one of the most expensive things is to put the appliances in there. You talk about Australia and what's happening over here. People are still caught up in this home improvement game. All the shows and everybody with their Instagramming of the perfect life and yeah. the perfect house. And it's so, it seemed bizarre to me that often the most expensive room in the house was the yeah. kitchen. And yet, as you say, the data is that people are spending less and less time in kitchens. Exactly, exactly. So yeah, that was one of the things that I was thinking about that people are using the kitchens to show off basically, but it's also a matter of in many cultures of hospitality. So of being able to welcome your guests with some food that you've prepared on on, on your own. But again, these are the things that make it so hard to believe that we might live without them. As you mentioned, in Spain, it's already progressed a little bit in some big cities, it's becoming a stronger trend, but for majority of people, it's still on the side of unimaginable. If I wanted to sell an apartment without a kitchen, it would be next to impossible. The price would be much lower for that sort of apartment. People simply expect it. Even <laughs> if you don't use it, you just need to have it. And then it's one of those vulnerable assumptions. Load-bearing assumption, isn't it? It's exactly. a load-bearing yeah. assumption on the value of your house. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and vulnerable at the same time. I wanted also to mention something on a little bit similar note where you used to desks and computers for white-collar workers. Whether you work from an office building or at your home, increasingly popular nowadays with the hybrid work and remote work after the pandemic. But you usually need a desk and a computer. Some of us sit in an armchair with a computer, but still the sort of a default thing is desks and computers for almost everyone their office buildings. And that hasn't really changed since white color work became a thing. So we have these different gadgets. We have a connected computer instead of pen and paper. But other than that, it's still very similar to what we had a hundred or more years ago. Here, I think I can mention AI because it's a driving force that can finally, perhaps, change how we do these jobs. So fundamentally, altering their nature, because much of the stuff that we need traditional computers form, these algorithms will be like making econometric models, let's say. (laughs) These algorithms will be able to do instead of us. We'll spend more time communicating with each other, maybe not necessarily by writing on our keyboards. Perhaps we would spend more time simply thinking, I don't know. But in any case, this may mean that we won't need those desks so much, at least that they stop being the default option. So this is definitely weaker signal than the one in the kitchens. So there are some early signs of things maybe changing finally in that area. If we wanted to go into the realm of truly weak signals that, that perhaps are worth mentioning. I would like to mention the free space holograms or mid-air holography, so something straight out of science fiction, but at the same time with more and more signals pointing that there might be more to it than than some of us would think. So there are obviously some advancements in the field of femtosecond lasers with what's called plasma emission, stuff like that. Still very theoretical, very far from mainstream, but who knows, perhaps we won't need those augmented reality glasses for everything. After Mm. all, AR glasses, this is currently a strong trend and we can easily imagine all sorts of uses for that. But still, there remain some benefits in being able to see something with your own eyes without those AR contact lenses, or even if it's very miniaturized, then being able to achieve especially large-scale 
mid-air holography would be something very inspiring and something that would allow us in some cases to connect easier with each other because we would be able to share the experiences better. One of the challenges apart from those very technical aspect of being able to achieve this is connected to complex computations that are also needed to, to do that sort of stuff. Both quantum computing and, and artificial intelligence may be an enabler here. And we could even imagine large-scale holograms becoming possible stadium size, yeah. which could be fun. <laughs> it could be something. Even though I'm mentioning holograms as a weak signal, it's a very complex thing that could be also achieved using AR to, uh, to some yeah. extent, at least. So perhaps we'll end up not really needing those expensive yes. holograms. So that's also why I put it in the yeah. very, very weak signals well, space, think... not only because of technological hurdles, but also because of some questions regarding the need, actually. It's something that science fiction has put in the spotlight, but perhaps we don't need it. You've made the connection between developments in quantum computing happening at the same time that the large language models are emerging to create a form of intelligent or seemingly surrogate artificial intelligence that if you flip the form of computing to much, much faster, then a whole lot of things become possible that just aren't possible now. Absolutely, absolutely. And then it becomes sort of an exercise in imagining the traffic jam rather than the car, right? Because <laughs> all sorts of previously unimaginable challenges and opportunities become possible. Thanks, Norman. How do you explain to people what Norbert does when people don't understand what it is that Norbert does? <laughs> well, I mentioned reducing avoidable surprises earlier, the tagline from assumption-based planning. And I would say it's one of the shortest and, and most accurate descriptions of, of what we do, reducing avoidable surprises and maybe broadening strategic opportunities. But uh, on our website, we are also maybe a bit more poetic. So on the page describing the company, we say that we, that we create guidebooks to the future. We explain that whether one likes it or not, we are all traveling into the future and that it's obviously better to travel with a good guidebook. So we basically got you covered. We can prepare your very own customized guidebook to the future. We can nice. identify unexpected opportunities and threats. We can help you use the future to thrive in the volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous world. So we can be your guides. And that's how we, we usually explain it. That's nice. There's, there's the notion of the guidebook and there's the notion of the guide. We used to go on holidays and there would be a guide <laughs> would take us around. And then increasingly we saw things like Lonely Planet where you actually don't need a guide, you just need enough information to guide yourself. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it's funny that you mention it because actually almost always mm, go on my holidays without, I don't use guides. I use guidebooks. I actually hate having a human guide with me. Mm -hmm. I really do prefer being able to explore or, or on my own. But then again, that's why maybe a customized guidebook, not necessarily a guide to the future, a guidebook which allows you to choose which opportunities for which threats you find most important and most interesting, which would you like, which opportunities you would like to pursue. That's the added value that we can bring. And, and obviously the customization here is an important part of all of that because uh, a traditional guidebook, you just go to a bookstore or, or you buy somewhere online. But in here, these are different kinds of guidebooks. These are customized. They need to be customized by definition because even when we talk about those assumptions, there is no such thing as an assumption for everyone. Each yeah. of us have our own. And in order for these guidebooks to be useful, we need to hear about our readers, so to speak, assumptions first in order to know how to create a good guidebook to the future for them. Thanks, Norbert.
We're at the last question. A particular thing I want to talk to you about, Norbert, was brought to my attention by a member of your team. There's a report and you ask the question, which I think is a fascinating question, how will we disgust our descendants? <laughs> yeah, so, that- do you want to explain to the listeners what that's about and also talk about the actual report? But I'm particularly interested as to why you chose to frame it through that particular word disgust, because disgust and the future <laughs> are not generally spoken about together. Yeah, in a few months ago, we thought it would be very interesting to analyze how our current ways could disgust our distant ancestors. So people living 100 years from now, that's the horizon that, that we chose, with the assumption, of course, that civilization would progress a lot and that humanity will be better or mature in the future. If we assume that, it's very easy to imagine that many aspects of our contemporary way of life, things that are now very common that we use, that we do daily, uh, could be perceived as, at the very least, highly controversial. But to (laughs) put it more bluntly, simply disgusting. Just like we currently think about, let's say, uh, witch burning, slavery, medieval torture, instrument, crusades, and so on and so forth, maybe which burning didn't happen on a daily basis. And even for people living then, when it was more common, it was already disgusting then. But still, some of these things are so common that you even don't stop to question them so much, like it was for a long period of time in human history with slavery or many cultures. It was an obvious Thing. So you wouldn't live in ancient Rome, let's say, even stop to consider that maybe it's a bad thing. I love the way you introduced this idea when you said, again, if I paraphrase, imagine life extension and whatever age you are now, your life has been extended by 100 years. And people coming to you at the age 100 plus, whatever, and asking you the question about how you lived in 2023. (laughs) And as you explained how you lived in 2023, what was a normal life, you were very conscious that the people asking the questions were getting quite upset or were responding to what you were saying in ways that made you notice that they were not happy with what you were saying. Yeah, yeah. As we said, they were listening. They were all adequately respectful about (laughs) your description of your way of life. But yeah, their follow-up questions would be a little bit accusing. Let's put it maybe like that, half of accusing or and half disgusted as we wrote there, I think, versions of how could you do things (laughs) like that. And then it's, you know, an interesting... uh, mind exercise to try to look for those things, not things that we really are already well aware that they are disgusting or terrible in our contemporary ways. We still have wars, we eat animal meat, and the awareness of these things being terrible are already quite quite widespread. But perhaps there are some other things which hardly anyone notices. These are these things you call contemporary barbarisms. Yes. Another beautiful yes. phrase. <laughs> Maybe there are some contemporary barbarisms that we simply don't notice. That was the idea for the project. And we made a questionnaire. We sent the questionnaire to various futurist networks. And we asked, what could we potentially discuss our descendants with? And we received answers from around 60, I think, respondents. And together, we had a few hundred ideas for these contemporary barbarisms, absolutely great and inspiring stuff. And then we clustered these ideas because a few hundred was a little bit too much. But then again, of course, many of them, even though in different words, were mentioning similar notions. So we clustered these ideas into less than a hundred potential contemporary barbarisms. And then we ran a second questionnaire in which we ask which of those are the most opening. 
for them. Not the most probable, but the most surprising yet plausible. Because as I mentioned, there are already quite a lot of contemporary barbarians that maybe not everyone, but many of us are well aware of. So we didn't want to spend too much time talking about those. We really wanted to find out whether there are some contemporary barbarisms that we are completely unaware of. And there are a lot of great ideas in there. So what was eye-opening for Norbert? The report has them ranked according to which is eye-opening, but which ones were most eye-opening for you? It's funny because one of the most intriguing, maybe eye-opening, I would say, for me didn't really come from the actual questionnaire and isn't really featured in our infograph that we did later on. But it was when we were telling about this project in its relatively early stages on a workshop we did for UNFCCC in Botswana, in Haborone. And during this workshop, we asked the participants of, of the workshop the very same question, and then we gathered the ideas. And one person mentioned that the fact that we are washing ourselves with water might be considered barbaric in the future. Without even mentioning the potential alternatives, you can imagine, you could imagine all sorts of ideas that maybe people a hundred years from now will use some nanotech in order to keep themselves clean, ideally clean without the need for this primitive washing ourselves with water on an almost daily basis, which is both using uh, the Earth's resources perhaps unnecessarily in large amounts, but also is far from being perfect, probably, because it's difficult to, to clean everything ideally. So the fact that we are washing ourselves with water was something which I remembered. But there are lots of other ones, obviously, that are worth mentioning. At the top of our list was something, was nature lacking legal rights in our current world. This wasn't for me personally, eye-opening, but it doesn't mean it's no. less important. I think New Zealand is the first country that has actually given legal rights to a river. Oh, yeah, yeah, I heard about it. So we already have these yes. weak signals for yes. that. Absolutely. There, there might be something to it. Perhaps we'll be treated as barbarians yeah. for not giving nature. No, as the founder of the company, when you make these times of projects and you publicise it and you are using it to both brand, but also I suspect you're trying to provoke people who, who respond to it. What was your thinking as to why this piece of work, which is a fascinating piece of work, but why did it become a kind of a piece of work that you used to very much identify with the organisation? This is something that, even though it uses a much longer time horizon that we are allowed to use in most of our work, this is very directly connected to the lines of thinking that we usually do and the ways in which we try the participants of various foresight processes to, to um, make them think. So thinking about the future in terms of trying to identify all the things which we are basically missing at the moment, trying to challenge your own assumptions, this sort of self-reframing critical thinking becoming a constant part of how you think about the future. So constant reinvention and trying to identify those things that you are missing when you develop a certain vision of the future, a certain scenario. So this is exactly that. One of the very first questions which we received after doing the project was, okay, so what was the consensus of those futurists around the world? So what do they think will be the barbarism? And these are the things that are at the very bottom of the infographic, and these are important because they are highly probable that indeed they will be treated as those contemporary barbarism. But that's not really what we wanted to uncover here and that's not the core of our work and then when we explain to people what we do that's exactly the message we try to convey that it's not about what's the most probable it's about what we are currently missing that that are completely out of your radar at the moment 
we are trying to put them on your radar. And if they are plausible enough, they are really worth considering. Perhaps some of them will make you realize that it's within the realm of possibility to influence the future in some way and to try to pursue them. Perhaps you would like to, to, to try to avoid some of these things, but realizing that there is some possibility that you were completely unaware of earlier is the very core of our work. And this is exactly the same with this kind of project, which had the, for me personally, the benefit of being very interesting and inspiring mind exercise. And then we drew some inspiration from that project of things that we wouldn't otherwise, even ourselves, think of before. And if it also helped in spreading the word about the usefulness of futures thinking and questioning your assumptions that we had that's why we had this short introduction in the beginning because obviously the infographic wasn't meant only for futurists it was meant for the wider public so spreading awareness about the need to try to think about the future in this way is uh, something that's for me personally very important trying to see the future from all sorts of different angles different from what you're used to using thanks norbert it's been great fun to meet you and hear of the terrific work your company is doing congratulations on the company congratulations for surviving for 20 years through all kinds of crises and viruses and wars not far from your borders. Thanks very much for taking some time out to spend some time with the Future Pod. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. And then, well, the adventure continues for both myself and then for CF as a, as a company. We are still doing those exciting expeditions into the future. So many more to come. I hope you enjoyed my chat today with Norbert and that you'll take some time out to investigate their work on contemporary barbarisms and maybe reflect on whether things you are doing now or not doing might disgust your descendants. I think it's a very useful question to ask ourselves and the people we work with. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you love listening to the pod and would like to support us, then please check out the Patreon link on our website. I'm Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.